vision series. We're looking at John 15 for a couple of weeks because our vision as a church is growing in Christ as a church for the city. And John 15 is all about what it means to grow. You saw in the passage that was just read, Jesus keeps talking about bearing fruit. And that's a metaphor, it's an image to signify growth. And John 15 is Jesus' vision for what does it mean to be a person who's growing? What does it mean for us to be a church that's growing? Now, all of you know that there's a difference between changing and growing. People change, things change, our city changes all the time. Sometimes you change in good ways, and sometimes you might change in not so good ways. It's possible to become more bitter, more irritable, a less kind person. It's possible for our city to get harder and maybe filled with more inequity. Things are always changing. So what we're asking is not just what does it mean to be a changing church, but what does it mean to be a growing church? What does it mean to be a healthy church, a a person or a church or a community that's growing in good ways? And Jesus, to illustrate that, is talking about a vine. Of course, the image is that of a seed planted. And if that seed is planted and growing in a healthy way, it will inevitably and eventually produce fruit. That's what we're interested in, bearing fruit. But you ask the question, well, what does that mean? Jesus keeps talking about a fruitful life. Well, it's a metaphor, and the metaphor is pointing to what we best see explained in Galatians chapter 5, because the Apostle Paul, when he was kind of giving a commentary on Jesus' teaching here, he says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, some of you here today are Christians. Some of you have been thinking about this stuff for a while. Others of you are brand new to church. Maybe you wouldn't identify as a Christian. Someone brought you along or you're just exploring. For all of us, would we not agree that we would like to be characterized as people who are loving, who are peaceful, who aren't self-absorbed, who are filled with joy, who are able to exercise self-control? That is what Jesus is interested in for you. A growing and a fruitful life. As you look at your life, do you see yourself becoming more and more filled with love and kindness and goodness? Jesus says, that's what I'm all about. It's abiding in Jesus. That's how it happens. Verse four, remain in me and you will bear fruit. Now, last week we began our series and we said, what does it mean to abide? And today we're going to go deeper. We're going to explore that even more fully. If we want to have a life that's growing in love and kindness and goodness and fruitfulness, The pathway there is abiding in Jesus. So what does that mean? Today, we're going to see that abiding in Jesus means communion, pruning, and seeing the true vine. Communion, pruning, and seeing the true vine. So let's take a look. First, Jesus says, you want to bear fruit? You got to abide. What does that mean? Communion. Abiding in Jesus is an objective reality that's meant to be subjectively experienced. Say that again. Abiding in Jesus is an objective reality that's meant to be subjectively experienced. What does it mean to be a Christian? According to the New Testament, a Christian is someone who is united to Jesus. 
That is, you live in him and he lives in you. You are in Jesus. You are free from all your sin. You are loved eternally by God. Your future is safe forever. A Christian is somebody who, because of God's sheer grace, is brought into Jesus' family. That's an objective truth. It's true of you if you trust in Jesus, no matter how you feel on any given day. But here's the question. Are you experiencing that truth in your life? For example, to be a Christian, to be united to Jesus, to be grafted into him, means that when God the Father looks at you, he is perfectly pleased. When God looks at you, he sees the beauty and the perfection of his son. That means that in the ultimate eyes, the only eyes that ultimately matter, the verdict is already in. Beloved, accepted, delighted in. Zephaniah chapter 3 says that when God looks at you, he sings. That's true of any person who's a Christian. So here's the question. If you're a Christian here today, if you identify as someone who's a follower of Jesus, do you live in the city as a person who knows they are perfectly loved, perfectly safe, perfectly delighted in? Or do you walk through the city with a kind of undercurrent of anxiety about how other people think of you? Whether it's your persona, your image, maybe it's even your digital presence, are you constantly filled with a kind of undercurrent of anxiety about how other people think you're doing? About whether or not so-and-so accepts you? Or if those people will invite you back? Or if your parents will finally be pleased? Or if that school's gonna let you in? Whatever the case might be. You see, there's a gap, isn't there? Between what's objectively true and what's subjectively felt. And what's communion with Jesus all about? It's about closing that gap. You see, union is not just a fact. I'm united to Christ, but it's meant to be something you experience. It's meant to be something that takes the truth of you, already true, and works it down into your heart so you feel it. So look with me at verse 7. Jesus is describing this very principle. In verse 7, Jesus says, If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. What's Jesus talking about? (laughs) It's so simple, it'll be underwhelming. (laughs) Scripture and prayer. You're united to Christ, but how do you experience it? You got to get into the Bible and you've got to pray. Scripture and prayer. Look, if my words remain in you, that's Scripture. Ask whatever you wish, that's prayer. The whole key to the Christian life, the whole key to experiencing the truth about you if you're a Christian is scripture and prayer. So let's just press into those two things for a minute. First, scripture. What is the Bible? The Bible is God's word to you. The Bible is not a set of commands primarily about things that you must do. The Bible is first and foremost a revelation of what God has done for you. Ultimately, the Bible's about Jesus. And here's the question. Not, do you interact with the Bible occasionally? But rather, is the Bible dwelling in you? Look at Jesus' language. If my words abide, remain, dwell in you. (laughs) There's no way for scripture to abide in you if the only way you partake in it is listening to someone like me talk about it once a week. Sermons are important. 
I believe in sermons, but they're not enough. If you want to commune with Jesus, I mean, think about it. Do you have any close personal relationships in your life? If you do, you know the only way to have those relationships is through the exchange of words. Because when a person speaks to you, what they're doing is they're revealing something about themselves to you. And if you really want to get to know somebody, the only way is by letting them share about themselves with words. And God says, scripture is my word to you. And if you want to know me, if you want to go deep in your relationship with me, I've spoken. Is the Bible working itself into your life? Not just do you interact with it occasionally, but are you immersing yourself in it? Is the Bible dwelling in you such that in moments of fear or crisis or even joy, what comes out is Bible? John Bunyan, many of you know, author of Pilgrim's Progress, during his lifetime, he was thought of as, he was made fun of a lot. He was not an educated man. He didn't go to the right schools. He didn't come from the right family. And so lots of his colleagues and peers, even in ministry, would kind of mock him and make fun of him. They called him a simpleton. But one day there was a very learned and educated minister who was asked, hey, what do you think of John Bunyan? And that man replied and he said, I would trade all of my learning to have his godliness. Bunyan is a Bible man. If you prick him anywhere, he bleeds Bible. If you prick him anywhere, he bleeds Bible. If you want to know Jesus, if you want to abide in him, he says, my words have to remain in you. And when that's happening, when you are soaking yourself in scripture, you grow. I'll give you this example. Many of you have big questions that you're trying to answer in your life right now. Questions like, should I take that job? Should I marry this person? Should I keep dating that person? How should I interact with that challenging person in my life? Lots of big questions. And sometimes we might be tempted to go to the Bible and try to find an answer. God, show me what to do. But friends, don't you realize that for most of life's biggest questions, the Bible doesn't give you an answer? If you want to know which job to take, it's going to be awfully hard for you to find a verse in the Bible that's going to tell you what to do. So what does the Bible do? <laughs> the Bible connects you to a person. You see, the Bible brings you to Jesus. And the more you soak yourself in scripture, the more you're shaped by the message of God in his word, you become a person who's more and more shaped in the image of Jesus. So that no matter what situation you head into, no matter what questions you're facing, you're now facing them as a person who's living out their union with Jesus. And so you don't always have the exact answers to your questions, but you have a heart posture or a disposition that can face anything. You see, to be a person in scripture is to be a person who's growing in their closeness to Jesus. And that gives you the resources you need for life. So scripture, but second, prayer. Jesus says, my words must remain in you. And then if you ask whatever you wish, he's talking about prayer. Now in this passage, there's something really general I wanna say about prayer and then something specific. So first, something very general. And here it is. If you were to meet a friend for coffee, you had an hour to hang out to catch up. So you guys get together at a coffee shop. You don't sit down and say, oh, it's been, it's been too long. It's great to see you. So let's do this. You talk for half an hour and then I'll talk for half an hour and then we'll be done. You don't do that. That'd be a very odd way to have a conversation. 
Instead, what you do is you sit down and you say something and they say something and you say something and they say something. And sometimes if they're chatty, they say a lot of things and you say something. (laughs) But what's happening? You're communing. You're building on each other. You're talking to each other. Lots of Christians think prayer and Bible reading are two different things. I pray or I read my Bible. I read my Bible and then I pray. But you see what Jesus is saying? Prayer and Bible reading are not two different things. They're two aspects of the same thing. Communing with God. If I were to tell you right now, hey, take 20 minutes and just go pray. For some of you, that would be really hard. You'd get distracted. You'd feel like, I don't know what to pray about. You'd be thinking about tomorrow's events and schedule. But if I said, take a psalm and sit down with that psalm and read a verse and then talk to God about what you read. And then take the next verse and talk to God about what you read. Maybe there's something to adore about his character. Maybe there's something to confess from within yourself. Maybe there's something to pray for, for somebody that you love. And you just take a verse and you respond to God. And then he speaks to you again and you respond back to him. Do you know how quick 20 minutes would go? Scripture and prayer, two sides of the same coin. Communion. Intimacy, closeness, relationship with Jesus. That's what he's talking about. Now, let me say something specific about this passage and what it's teaching us on prayer. Come with me again, verse seven. Jesus says, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. It's a big promise and it's a hard promise. Some of you, even as I read that this morning, as I do so, it fills you with pain because you say, I've done that. I have asked, I've asked a lot and nothing's happened. I've asked God to bring something or someone into my life and nothing's changing. I've asked God to take something from me, take a desire, take situations that I don't want and they're still there. So the passage says, ask whatever you wish and it will be done and I've done that and it hasn't happened. And right here, we're on the edge (laughs) of the mystery of unanswered prayer. One of the hardest parts of spiritual life. We covered this topic in our prayer cohort a couple of months ago, and we plan to do so again. And today, all I wanna say is this about this mystery of unanswered prayer. In verse seven, Jesus connects asking for whatever you want with abiding in him. In other words, if you hear Jesus saying, ask whatever you want, and you think, sweet, blank check, you're missing the force of what Jesus is saying. He's saying, if you abide in me, if being connected to me has become the joy of your life, then you can ask for whatever you want. And Jesus is saying, because what you ultimately will recognize you need is not the things I give, it's just me. John Stark, who has a really helpful book on this topic, puts it like this. In the context of abiding, Jesus instructs us to ask for whatever we wish. This means we ought to define our asking by our abiding. That relationship means then that we must be with Christ for more than just the times when we come to ask for whatever we want. In other words, our abiding becomes more characteristic than our asking. And our asking becomes more informed and characterized by our abiding. You see, communion 
is about getting God, not just things from him. And throughout your spiritual life, if you're a Christian, you are going to face the challenge and the mystery of unanswered prayer. But I'll tell you, one of the things that makes unanswered prayer more manageable, it's still hard, of course, is recognizing that ultimately the prayer that we most need to pray and that God always answers is to give us more of himself. Did you know that even Jesus felt unanswered prayer? On the night before his death, Jesus kneeled before his father and said, if it's possible, take this cup. I don't want to face the agony of the cross. But then Jesus prays in communion with his father and says, yet not my will, but yours be done. So abiding shapes our asking. Communion with God. Do you know anything of it? It's it's a treasure in front of you. Are you tapped into it? Scripture and prayer to know the living God personally and closely. Communion. But second, the next thing this passage tells us about abiding or growing in Jesus, pruning, pruning. Remember, Jesus is teaching by imagery. He's talking about a fruitful vine that grows and has a rich crop. So come with me to verses one and two. Jesus says, I'm the true vine. My father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. If you've ever been near an orchard or a vineyard in the winter, in the cold, dark winter months, maybe you've seen gardeners doing pruning. And here's what it looks like. Beautiful lush trees or vines filled with beautiful foliage start getting attacked by the knife. And branches that look beautiful start getting cut off. And all around these trees that once looked lush and beautiful, they now look bare and wounded. In fact, gardeners call pruning wounding. One author writing about it put this this way. A grapevine full of foliage must, uh, might be beautiful, but it won't be fruitful. An experienced and wise vine dresser prunes the foliage back an essential part of renewing the vine. A pruned vine is not very pretty. What previously looked vibrant and beautiful is cut down to the stubs. You see, what a good gardener does is he (laughs) comes along and says, for this tree, this vine to be as fruitful as possible, we've got to cut back these branches. And that process is really painful for that vine. It's really painful for that tree. And you see what Jesus is saying. Remember, it's a metaphor And he's saying in a nutshell, if you want to be a person that grows, sometimes there are going to have to be things that have got to go. Pruning is a sign of loss. It's a sign of removal. And it's painful. And oftentimes it can seem very pointless. If you were to be at an orchard or a vineyard and you were to see a gardener pruning, you would say, why are you cutting that off? It's so pretty. Why are you removing that part? It looks so fruitful. And it would look pointless to you. You'd say, this makes no sense. And hear what Jesus is teaching us in John 15. Pruning is not punishment. It's the pathway for growth. The loss, the removal, the pain, it's the pathway towards greater fruitfulness. To become a person who's growing in love and joy and peace. But here, listen. At this point, some of you are getting a little frustrated, a little irritated, and here's why. You're thinking to yourself something like, this is what God does, 
in order to make me a more loving, noble, kind, good person, he sends loss and suffering and pain into my life? Is that what this passage is saying? To make me a wiser person, he prunes me? Not exactly. Years ago, when I was first preparing to preach on this passage, I heard my old pastor talk about it. And what he said shaped my understanding of this verse in a great way. He says this, look, suffering, loss all by itself doesn't necessarily turn you into a better person. And you know that. Sometimes when we suffer and we go through sadness and pain, we become more self-absorbed, more irritable, more closed off from the world, more cynical. Suffering and loss by itself doesn't make you a better person. But here's the reality. Every single person is going to have loss in their life. Every single person, regardless of your age, regardless of your cultural background, regardless of your spiritual background, regardless of how much money you have or don't have, loss and suffering is coming into your life. But do you hear what Jesus is saying? We live in a broken world, loss and suffering, it's inevitable. But if you abide in me, if you're connected to me, then the loss and the suffering that seems pointless for other people can never be pointless for my people. You can't do anything about loss and suffering coming into your life, but Jesus says, if you abide in me, if you're connected to me, then there is no loss or suffering that will come into your life that won't ultimately and inevitably make you more fruitful. As organic as a grapes grow out of a vine that's healthy, Jesus says there is no pruning that's going to come that's not going to lead to growth and abundance. That's the promise of this passage. Not that God sends pruning, but that he turns everything that happens into our life into a pathway for growth. And this theme is repeated all throughout the Bible. Romans chapter 8, we know all things, Paul say, work together for good. He's not saying all things are good. He's saying all things can be used by God for the good of his people. And this is a theme that's repeated over and over in scripture. So what does this mean? There's too much loss and suffering in our world. It's way too much sadness and pain. Personally, systemically in our city. So abide in Jesus. Because if you're connected to him, The master gardener is able to take even the greatest pain and sadness and disappointment. And so work in your life so that it becomes a pathway towards fruitfulness. So that you can say with John Newton, everything must be needful that he sends. And nothing can be needful that he withholds. That's true for those who abide in Jesus. Are you abiding? Do you know him? You say, well, Bijan, that sounds nice if it were true. (laughs) But how can I know that this is my reality? How can I know that even the pruning is a pathway towards fruitfulness? How can I commune with him? Well, the answer is we have to see the true vine. We have to see Jesus. Come back with me to verse one. Jesus introduces this whole teaching by saying this, I am the true vine. Now, it's interesting. When you and I hear the word true, we often think of true as opposed to false, like inaccurate. So is Jesus saying, I am the accurate vine? Not quite. The Greek word underneath our English word true, it literally means perfect, complete, 
Jesus is saying, I'm the real thing. I'm the real thing. What's he getting at? To be a human being, not just to be a Christian, to be a human being, you've got to get yourself connected to some vine. Every person in our city, every person that you're going to cross path with today, tomorrow, everyone's connected to some vine. You see, you don't have the resources to do life by yourself. A branch, a a tree, when it's pruned, a vine, when it's pruned, you know what happens? It's cut down. And so that branch, in order to survive, it has to go back to the trunk and get nutrients from the trunk, from the vine itself. And every person, when you have joys and when you have sorrows, when you have your dreams coming true and when everything falls apart, you're always looking to some vine to give you life. And for many of you, you're looking to romance. Romance you have or romance that you want. Or your job and career success or something connected to that. A sense of I'm an achiever. The money that I get as a symbol, as a status marker. Maybe you just love your job and you get a sense of identity from being really good at it. For others, it's relationships and family. For others, it's just being a really moral and a good person. look Look at how good I am. We're all looking to some vine to give us our sense of life, our sense of purpose, our sense of stability. And every single vine that you look to, other than God, is going to let you down at some point. It can't sustain you. And when Jesus says, I'm the true vine, he's saying, I'm the one that will never let you down. I'm the real thing. What you've been looking for in romance, what you've been looking for in success, what you've been looking for in achievement, You've been looking for me, Jesus says. I'm the real thing. You say, well, how do we know that? How do we know he's the real thing? Because throughout the Bible, when God is describing his people, one of the images he uses is he calls them a vine. He says, my people are my vineyard. But the problem is when you read the Bible and he's talking about his people as a vineyard, they're always being judged. (laughs) They're always being criticized. And the reason for that is they were meant to be, God's people in the world were meant to be a manifestation of God's own love and joy and peace, all the things we already talked about, but they weren't. Instead of loving, they were self-absorbed. Instead of being patient, they were impatient and looking to other things to satisfy them. In other words, throughout the Bible, the people of God were supposed to be fruitful, but they weren't. And then Jesus comes and says, but I, I'm the true vine. That is to say, God didn't look at our story and say, well, look, you want to do it in your own way? Fine, good luck. Jesus says, you're trying to do things your own way and you can. So here I come to be the kind of person and to do the things that you could have never done for yourself. When Jesus says, I'm the true vine, what he's saying is, I am the embodiment of everything you should have been but weren't. I am the one who lived with perfect love. I mean, I dare you, if you've not, read the Gospels. Try to find a person who is more beautiful and fruitful than Jesus Christ. A person who lived with more love and kindness and gentleness and patience than Jesus himself. Jesus is the ultimate vine, the true vine. And yet what happens? At the very end of Jesus' life, instead of being welcomed and accepted by the love and the embrace of the Father, what happens? Jesus is cut off. 
the most, <laughs> the most fruitful person in history dies on a dead tree on a hill outside of the city of Jerusalem. Think about that. One author writing about that very stark reality puts it this way. The Lord's own deepest pruning was the cross. We must not forget our part, on our part, that a certain cross on Golgotha has become the most fruitful of all the trees. Jesus pruning, Jesus being cut off literally, was his dying in your place. Because he was the one who lived the life that you should have lived, but on the cross, on that dead tree, he's dying the death that you should have died, taking the punishment that you deserved. And because of that, Jesus can say to you, abide in me, trust in me, rest in me, look to me. If you do as you do, you find yourself plunged into an ocean of love. How do you become more joyful? By seeing Jesus' joy for you. How do you become a more patient and a kind person? By seeing Jesus' kindness lead him to the cross for you. You see, you don't, we don't change by buckling down and trying harder. We grow and we change by being people who see Jesus taking our place for us. The Lord's own pruning the cross would become the most fruitful of all trees. And so today you say, I want to be that. I want to be a person who's growing. I want to be a person who communes with God, who's fruitful. I want to trust him even in my loss and my hardness. Look to the cross. Look to Jesus. See what he's done for you. Rest in him. And watch what he produces in your life. Let's pray. Let's ask for that now. Our God, as we come now to our time of response, we thank you that by the power of your spirit, you're able to take these words and bring about not just more information in our lives, but transformation. That right now we can abide in you. We can look to the cross and see you dying in our place. That we can commune with you in scripture and prayer. We can trust you even in our hardest and what seem like bleakest moments that you are with us and working for us. All because of what Jesus has done, taking our place. So help us today, right now, to look to him, to see him dying for us and to be transformed. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.